We will be reading this morning from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17 of Joel chapter 2. We're just considering the first 11 verses as our text this morning. Following that, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 56. that you will bear with me this, this morning. I've, I seem to have caught a little bit of a chest cold at the camp out, so I'm hoping there's no, uh, nothing obnoxious in your ears coming from my chest. But Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains, like the the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march, each on his way, They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He who knows Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we'll turn now to Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 to 56. 
Matthew chapter 20, 27, verses 45 to 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the, mothers of the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a significant discussion in Joel about what exactly chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 describes. Uh, there are two primary options. The first is that it's a coming invasion by a foreign army, which is prototypical or a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lord, a small day of the Lord like judgment. And the second is that it is a metaphorical expansion on the locust invasion described in chapter 1. Now, discerning between these two positions is rather difficult, so I, I, and I don't think the evidence is convincing enough either way, so I think either one works. The outcome is the same in both cases. In both cases, the people's attention is drawn to the disaster in order to move the people once again to repentance, as you see in the second half of the reading that we did. But I think this time, insofar as we're looking at the oracle of judgment, there's, as it relates to the oracle of judgment in chapter 1, there's something new, there's something different. There is no way out, they are coming, as one wizard said. The point here being that I think that Joel's, Joel's purpose here is to so dash their hopes of deliverance and resources from elsewhere that they would indeed turn to the Lord. You'll also notice that in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, contrasted with chapter 1, there's no call to wake up here, and there's also no call to repent. It is, for the most part, at least inside the declaration of judgment, just an oracle of coming cataclysm. There's no hope, there's no, no call to awake, no call to arise, no call to specific groups. He is painting a picture of what is coming. And so I find it to be a really interesting passage, and the main point of it is indeed to herald a great day of judgment when the Lord rides out in judgment against his own people, the wicked in his, in, in his own house, and a day from which for them there is no escape. And it's not just that there's no escape, but as we see in verse 15 of this chapter, they will go on to turn to the Lord. They'll say, blow a trumpet in Zion, call it, consecrate a fast, and call a solemn assembly. And that is extended in verse 16. But in terms of the conventional wisdom, even if there is repentance that's given later on in the chapter, in terms of the conventional wisdom that they have, 
nothing will do. And this was, in fact, actually a very serious problem for the people of Israel and for the people of Judah during the Old Testament period. It was very common for them, when met with some sort of cataclysmic disaster, to before they go to the Lord, to instead turn to their counselors and say, well, what should we do? And the habit would be, well, let's go to Egypt. Let's go and make a deal with Egypt and see if they can't deal with us with this problem of Assyria or with this problem of Babylon. So it would seem then that that's what Joel is doing. Okay, This is not enough. You can't go to them. You can't go to anything. There's no escape from the army that's coming. So despite, and yet despite this reality, this, this, this very plain message of total and complete judgment, the picture that they're getting in this onslaughting army, I think that what we'll find is that Joel is doing something additional to that. He wants to draw, that we want to draw out from our passage today. Judgment is what's plain in the text, but that still evokes something, that still produces something. Joel's purpose here is broader, and its meaning in the scheme of redemptive history, extends beyond simply this announcement of judgment into Christ himself. And it draws the people there from their recognition that nothing else can be done. So I want to look at that this morning in three ways. The first is absolute judgment, the second is absolute purpose, and the third is absolute payment. Absolute judgment, absolute purpose, absolute payment. So first, judgment. So the passage stands as a whole, as one unified picture of the day of the Lord, from the beginning of verse 1 to the end of verse 11. And it's a picture of what's associated with this coming day of the Lord. And what's presented to us is total and utter absolute coming judgment. There's no escape. At the end of verse 1, he announces that the day of the Lord is coming. Now, he did this in chapter 1, but now in chapter 2, there's movement to this. It's not just that it's coming, it's not just that it's near, but it, rather it is also coming. It's arriving, it's, it's around the corner. And it adds to this oracle a sense of urgency. And it possibly indicates that if this is, this is not just another announcement of judgment, but the because it's not, a, it's not the same announcement of judgment, but it's a different one because the repentance offered in chapter 1, in the second half of chapter 1, was either insufficient or at this point it's been abandoned and they've returned to their sins. And he goes on in verse 2 to say this. A day of darkness, in describing this day, it's a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, that is spread out upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, whose like before has never been, nor will be again after them through all the years of the generations. So here we then have, as he's describing this day, the army that encroaches with it. And it's, and it's a description of darkness and gloom, an army so great that it, it, it literally it has never been seen before, and nothing ever to come after it will compare. And associated with this army is utter darkness, utter blackness. The skies, uh, the skies go dark. The, cos- the cosmos itself reacts to their approaching march. Now this language that, de- that describes the 
the skies, this darkness, this gloom, these clouds, and this thick darkness is very interesting language. This is language that's uh, almost exclusively used in Scripture to, you, to, to uh, describe God's appearing in holy judgment. So you'll remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the language that it uses there. You have not come to what may be touched, but a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. It's the same language. It was similarly used in, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 19 to describe Israel before the mountain, mountain of Sinai, after God had brought them out from Egypt. There's a stern warning placed alongside the mountain upon which these dark clouds had overshadowed and had come. Don't touch the mountain, lest you shall surely die. So it indicates to us that there's this, when this theophanic, this, this language of God's appearing, theophany, when this language is used in the Old Testament, it's describing God's appearing in righteous, terrifying judgment. And this is oftentimes heavily associated with His holiness. And so this army then that comes with this darkness is, is much like the locust described in chapter 1. It's described as having the effects of fire, of devouring everything before it and in front of them. So they leave, they, they, the, like fire, they consume what's in front of them and behind them they leave only ashes and embers. And it's not just any land that they are devouring, but the lush new Eden, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had installed the people of Israel into. And so in verse 3, as this army comes forth, nothing is left in this Garden of Eden. Only a trail of destruction in their wake. And notice also too, fire also is language for God's appearing. Theophanic language. Nothing is left and nothing escapes before His glorious, all-consuming presence. Joel then goes on in verses 4 to 5 to describe the army's appearance. He likens it to chariots and war horses riding forth. He speaks about the nature of what this experience would be like. The ground would shake before them, and just as fire devours the chaff or stubble, they consume and devour everything before them. The effect that they have on people is actually that, that the people do, do tremble. Their faces grow, as it, hot, as it were, with this idiom, hot like fire. They are filled with fear. And this is the appropriate response when the glory of God appears in judgment against the wicked. Fear. In verses 7 to 9, Joel goes on to describe the performance of this army, and it's quite the terrifying image. They charge, they climb walls. They do not grow fearful or stray from their path, terrified of the battle or the skirmish ahead. In verse 8, we're told that there's no confusion among their ranks as they ride forth. Each remains in his own lane. They also remain unstruck by weapons and javelins of the enemy armies. Can you imagine that? An army so well trained that riding forth on chariots, they don't get confused, they don't mix, they don't bump into each other. As they rush forward like infantry, they do not, they do not be, become overcome by fear and turn around knowing that they, that, of the chaos that ensues. 
this army and its soldiers are so unstoppable, as it were, that they jump, they leap on the city, and they run along the city walls, storming the castle. Nowhere is safe. They climb even through the windows. These are all things that don't apply to normal soldiers. War is chaos. It's terrifying. People do stray out of their lines. They do stray out of formation. They do swerve from their paths. They do get scared and tremble and decide to abandon their course. Not this army. This would be shocking to the people of of Judah hearing this as the description of the invasion of the holy city of Zion that is now in a state of alarm. They believe not only that the Lord was on their side, but that Zion, that Jerusalem, was impenetrable, that nothing could break it. Here, however, they hear of an army unfazed by the walls or the armies of Jerusalem, and instead they look, make it look like cannon fodder. So it's appropriate then, as Joel describes in verse 10 to 11, that the cosmos itself, that the skies itself, respond in fear to the coming of this army. The work of creation is, as it were, were annulled as the cosmos convulses with the approach of this, these armies. And this cosmological upheaval, the overturning of even the operations of the sun and the moon, is also, by the way, common language for theophany, for God's appearing. When God appears in judgment on earth, the earth and all its stable operations, the normal rising and setting of its course is suspended. Whose army is this? It is the Lord's. He's in command of it, this great and mighty camp, and they listen to his words, as verse 11 says. He snaps his fingers and they go. So it all leads up to this final question announced through a a rather rhetorical question. Who can endure it? Nobody. The point of this image drawn up to this point is that this army is not only so great and so numerous, but they are also the very best warriors. These are Spartans. They have no fear. They do not go warily into battle and nothing can stop their approach. There is literally no escaping this day of the Lord and there's no mistaking it for anything other than absolute judgment coming from the hand and the appearing of God and from His command. So I can't help then but wonder as I interact with this, why another oracle of judgment? I mean, it seems fairly similar to the oracle of the locust where complete, everything was completely decimated, where nothing was left behind, there was no escaping, there was no one doing what the damage had, that had been done. Is there a plain and absolute purpose to it? And it wasn't just the judgment that was pronounced in the first section, it was also the repentance that came after it. So is this just copy and paste with different language? I don't think so. I think one suggestion would be that the repentance offered was insufficient or did not stick. That is, some time has passed and something new has come about. The people are returning to their old ways and Joel has to corral the people, as it were, again, to a state of repentance. 
But if Joel also is just indeed, is indeed a liturgical book, a call and response book, then we, we might be right to understand this as the, the, the response to their repentance. That it's, maybe it's not something new, but it's, it's just a cycle of call and response where Joel is describing the, the various forms of judgment that have and that would come upon them as a means to continue to stir them up to repentance and as a means to continue to stir them up to righteous behavior. And this would especially be the case if there was a worship crisis, a failure to rightly love God in His holy terror. The point then being that no token repentance is sufficient enough because things had been so bad and, and, and there's reason for concern that they would return. So this point about the judgment of God against the unrighteous, even with His own house, really needs to be gotten. He doesn't want feigned obedience. He wants true repentance, true obedience. Another product of this, another purpose behind this, is that they would see the greatness of their sin. Not just that they would repent, but they would see God's writing out in judgment against them and, and draw out this sense of guilt and tragedy on their part. That they would understand just how grievous they had sinned against God. The holy God who appeared to Israel in Sinai upon the mountain, which they could not touch, is now arriving in cataclysmic judgment in the form of an army before them. The same language, after all, is used in both passages. This thick, dark clouds of judgment. And so here, as it were, mounting up to ride, God is, as it were, mounting up to ride out against his own people. And so the, the product is that rightly they should be terrified. Rightly they should recognize, if this is what God does, see how holy he is. If this is the consequence, see how great my sin is. There's no escape. No one can endure this. So it is also that no token solution will do. If, if this is the consequence, if this is the extremity of our sin, no token, no token solution will do. And you can't find recourse elsewhere. This army makes every other army pale in comparison. So there is reason for alarm. There is reason for the terror that Joel summons the people to in the first verse. As a prophet, he is the watcher on the wall, looking out and spotting, this, this, spotting on the edge of the horizon this coming siege and saying, whoa, we're stuck. Not only that, but there's no foreign nation that we can go to for aid. There's no one that can match the might of this, this army. There are no wise counselors you can reach out to and no emissaries you can send down to Egypt for deliverance. This brings us to a third reason. It would be for the sake of drawing the people 
to repentance. And notice in this section, there is cause for alarm, but no cause call for repentance, at least not yet. And so I think maybe one of the things that Joel is doing here that's very likely that he's indicating is that at this point in the history of God's people, repentance is, is too late. It's too little too late. It won't do much to deliver even though they should repent. This would be the case with Josiah and with Hezekiah who despite the reforms and generally upright character of their kingship still received oracles of judgment that were to come upon their people because things had gotten so bad. And we see that reflected in the verses that follow our text today. Repentance is offered and restoration is promised in the subsequent section, but that still leaves the coming of the Lord in judgment that no one can escape they'll still suffer it. And so faithful servants of the Lord, like Ezekiel, for example, would be carried off into exile. They would suffer this judgment that no one could escape, that, uh, of an army like no one had ever before seen. And so Joel's message to them, of course, is be alarmed. Be wary. It's good to repent. We'll get there. But God is coming in judgment, great and mighty cataclysmic judgment, and you cannot avoid this. This is coming. Now, at first level, we see this passage fulfilled in exile. If we're right to locate Joel's prophecy, Joel's office and operation as a prophet just before Israel or Judah was taken into Babylonian exile in 586, then what followed was actually the, the, the army that the Lord raised up in judgment against them. It wasn't the army's coming to Israel's aid as they expected, but it actually does ride out against them here. And so there's a reversal to Israel's hope. Instead of a myriads or thousands of winged hosts and the heavenly army coming to their aid, Joel describes armies coming, coming in devastating judgment against their own people. It would be a shock to them. And so in some sense, they offer up their own payment for their own guilt in this place, in the first level fulfillment within the context of the Old Testament. This is located, of course, within, within the, the Mosaic Covenant, within the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And so for their disobedience, it was prophesied that judgment would come. And now it's coming. And if anything, it's an indicator of just how bad things had got by this time. So the fact that in these 11 verses at face value there is no hope described in these passages in this passage isn't actually surprising to us. If things are this bad, if things are so bad and there's a worship crisis and God is pronouncing judgment that cannot be be escaped, it shouldn't be shocking to us that that actually does come upon the people of Israel because that was the terms they'd agreed to with Moses. But does this mean then that the passage remains hopeless and speaks none of the gospel? Does this mean that even those who suffered by the hands of the first level fulfillment invading armies like Babylon truly had no hope and nothing else to do? Should they just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow they die and not care about repentance and not care about continuing to serve the Lord? And the witness of the Old Testament is no. 
because you can suffer corporal punishment for overall wickedness like Daniel and like Ezekiel without being personally reprobate yourself. That's the hope of someone like Daniel crying out to the Lord, where is the fulfillment of your prophecy? Why are we still in exile? Okay, well then, what is your hope? Do you suffer some kind of day of the Lord-like judgment that Israel faced? And the answer is no. First and foremost, we're within a different covenant, the new covenant, the better covenant. But secondarily, the day of the Lord has an unfolding-like fulfillment in the same way that there is an unfolding to the kingdom of God, in the same way that there is an unfolding to the advent of Christ. There are multiple levels of fulfillment. And so the reality is that at some point, the picture of the day of the Lord that we get in the Old Testament when God raised up the armies in Babylon and Assyria to judge his own, own people will be surpassed by the real thing. That's just a picture. And from the, day, the second day of the, the, the real day of the Lord, the fullness of the day of the Lord, there will be no escape. There will be no deliverance anywhere you look. There, then the cosmic order will be overturned and the foundations of the earth will quake. Then nothing can endure. And though there may not be hope in the face of this passage or any means of deliverance for the wicked given in this passage, there is hope proclaimed to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He offers absolute payment for you and for me. At Golgotha, the heavens and the earth were overturned, the day turned to night, and there was darkness and dark clouds. At Golgotha, the earth quaked and trembled. At Golgotha, it is that the Lord gathered up his army on the day of judgment to ride out against his own son. At Golgotha, the Lord directed his judgment like warriors who are unwavering in their course, and he did not swerve from his path, and he poured out that judgment, not on Isaac, hoping there was another lamb, but on his own son. He deliberately, with drive and, po- and focus, poured out wrath on, his, on, the, on the only son that he had from all of creation, instead of pouring it out on the unrighteous and the deserving. And so Joel cries out rhetorically at the end of the passage, who can endure it? Well, the reality is, apart from Christ, no one can endure it. I'm reminded of the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 17 here. Why must he, that is Christ, be true God? so that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So, yeah, no other recourse will do. The day of judgment is coming. No other deliverer will do. Nothing else can withstand the day when God rides out in judgment against the wicked. 
The only one who is able and who is powerful to endure that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power of his divinity was able to withstand the judgment of God against sin. So this passage then hails to us a message of judgment. Absolute judgment will come from God. God will write out. Nothing can escape. Nothing can endure. And you will have no recourse save Jesus Christ. It tells you indirectly through its oracle of judgment what you should be looking for and what won't do. So how then does that speak comfort to the people of God today? I think it's very simple. You can very simply be happy that you're found in Him. You can be happy and joyful that the wrath of God wrote out against Christ and not against you and that by faith you are found in Him, that you suffered with Him and that you were raised with Him. And certainly, I think at street level, if he is a faithful enough father, savior, redeemer, and God to deliver us by the hand of his own son from his own mighty judgment, the likes of which had never before seen and would never be, and, and would never be seen again, then he is faithful enough to care for, to order, to sustain, and to deliver you from whatever trials you endure in your day-to-day life. This passage heralds one simple message. Only one can endure, and you're found with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who came to take our place. We give you thanks and we give you praise that we are delivered from that day of judgment, that we'll never experience it, that great and awesome day. We ask, therefore, that we would live lives of repentance, lives of joy, and lives of confidence. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.